Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Thriving Minds podcast. I'm Professor Selena Bartlett. Today, we're joined by Stephen Shaw. He is the founder of birthgap.org. It's a social enterprise, and it's got a very specific mission to support communities around the world with the birth gap crisis. Why are birth rates falling and falling at different rates across the industrialized world? The documentary film is called Birth Gap, Childless World. And it was featured in the New York Chelsea Film Festival in 2021. So today we're going to be talking all about that. So thank you, Stephen, for joining us um, on the Thriving Minds podcast. Thank you very much. It's a real pleasure to be here. Tell us a little bit about your story, Stephen. Well, it was a a very strange moment for me because I seven years ago, I, I was looking at data and that's what I normally do. I simply look at data and uh, I, for my client, for my business, which uh, is a business which looks forwards, we do predictive modeling, forecasting for the future for different industries around the world. I saw some data about falling birth rates that I wasn't aware of, and I decided to look at more data for more countries and more countries, and I saw similar trends almost everywhere in the industrialized world, and hints of it in other countries too. And it was shocking. It was it was shocking on every level, one being that I didn't know about it. it. It's something you had heard about, I had heard about for maybe Japan is a famous case where Japan has had low birth rates since the 70s. Many people may know that. I also knew a little bit about Spain and Italy being like that. But when I saw this for Germany and Switzerland and Austria and Canada, uh, even starting in the US and also Australia, um, my curiosity was peaked to the point of not only wanting to understand the reason for this, for my own sanity almost, but for my kids' generation, they were all just about still in their teens at that point. I realized that my children are being brought up without being taught or being made aware that the world's going to change quite fundamentally through this. It's not like we're going to shrink down slowly and barely notice we're all going to know this. Tell everyone about the aha moment, mm. and tell them. T- let's let's go straight to that moment because I well, had it too. Listening to you, it was really like we just stopped, looked at each other, and went, "That is not what we've been thinking about." We all, and then you pass this information to people to go, "But we're having a population explosion. We need less people." Well, the aha moment, I mean, I remember where I was sitting. It was probably 18 months into the project. Um, I'd been traveling and filming in Europe and Japan at the time and trying to find out what was common between these countries. There had to be a common connection, yet no one could kneel as to to what that might be. In Japan, it was work-life balance. In Europe, it was youth unemployment, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but there was a moment when I merged together two data sets from the UN. Um, and I don't think it's ever been done before. And it's part of an academic paper I'm writing myself now to documenting it all. But it, it looks at family structure, family sizes across the decades, the number of children people are having. And from that, what I was able to deduce was um, societal childlessness. And that was a aha moment because what I realized that had happened in all of these countries Um, at the exact moment birth rates fell, an explosion in childlessness occurred. I mean, down to the the month almost. It was just one of the most striking trends you could ever imagine. And the other side of that equation is that 
family structure has barely changed at all. So that uh, what I mean is that the number of, well, we talk of mothers because we have a lot of data on mothers. It's mm-hmm. parents really, but just to talk about it from a data point of view, you know, the proportion of mothers who are having two children might be typically 40, 50% in the country. That hasn't changed for decades, nor has the number having one, two, well, one, two, three, four, five. Even in Japan, um, I don't know the statistic at hand, but going back to the 70s, the proportion of mothers having 10 children, it was always small, but it's the same today as it was 50 years ago. So the only thing that's changed of significance was the number of women number of people having no children at all. And so that was quite shocking. And you show this really clearly through graphs well, in your documentary after a lot of research. Well, it, it, it was a strange moment for me because um, that was the moment I, under, I felt I understood what's been happening up until that point. I mean, I say in a documentary that uh, I couldn't sleep, um, but I actually mean that. I mean, I was waking up in the middle of the night uh, thinking, why would humanity, why would our species, all of them, starting at the same time in not just Japan, but it was early 70s, Japan, Italy, Spain, Germany, suddenly have this trend of low birth rates, yet they got different cultures, no one's ever connected them, and then why would it slowly spread to, to country after country after country right up to the present day? And you know, that doesn't happen for other species. You know, it, it, something fundamental would have had to cause that. And every single idea, uh, and I mean, of course, there's many ideas that people have, and for their own personal lives, they may well be true. But if I can just cover off one, a lot of people today make comments it's because of finance that people today have you know less money than before, less disposable income, perhaps. And I know that for many, finance is a challenge. But when you look at the data, what actually happens, people earn more, they don't start having more children. They perhaps do other things or what usually happens um, is that people just delay things further. So you cannot say that this is caused by people having le- less, less funds available, even though that may be a very real thing for many people or indeed things like gardens. Many people have and governments have tried to solve this by offering more kindergarten options. That's a good thing, I'm sure it is. But when you look at the data, when you increase the number of kindergartens, the birth rate doesn't go up. So when I therefore saw childlessness, it it gave me my first opportunity to to start thinking, okay, now I know what the reason is, why have we got a trend in childlessness? And that really has been, you know, I guess my uh, that's become my my passion unexpectedly since since that time. So as you nailed it, the the kind of guiding principle is why is this happening all over the world? Not because whenever you mention this, people always say Japan, and that's an outlier case, or that's the instant reaction you get when you mention this information. Uh, and then they might say, and then you'll talk about Germany, and then you'll talk about Spain because. Uh, they're also in Italy that they're more in the press, but what's been your guiding principle as to the kind of global phenomena of this uh, unintended childlessness? Yeah. And just by the way, the term I'm starting to use uh, is unplanned childlessness. It's unintended. That's exactly right. But I think there's something about calling this unplanned childlessness because it implies that we need to make some planning that without planning 
there's an academic called uh, Professor Renska Kaiser who has written a vast amount of information about this general topic of childlessness. And what she explains is that it's the word the word that she doesn't like is the word choice, meaning that um, there's no real moment in time when people choose to become parents. You know, you're hoping that certain events happen at a certain moment in time. So rarely is it a case of, okay, I'm going to make that choice when I'm 32 or 29, because you need to have the right partner. You Lots of things in your life need to line up. So what usually ends up happening for people who do become childless um, and a moment, in a moment, I will talk about people who do 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 choose not to be childless. That's different. But for the people, the majority of people who are looking to become parents who don't, it's just a case of life drifts on, and that moment never happens at the right time or when we get to that moment. Um, fertility challenges have have kicked in, and and this is this is where you get into deeply harrowing. Uh, areas where you know I, I was pulled into conversation after conversation with women and men who are still trying to come to terms with the fact that you know this unplanned eventuality that this outcome for their lives trying to reflect on how did that happen how is it that that life just went that way so to go back I think to your question as to you know, why is this happening in so many countries, starting in Japan, Italy, Germany, you know, in the early 1970s? Um, there's certain lifestyle changes that I think have occurred in that time. Um, and I, I want to be really clear, we cannot go backwards to a time when we take away women's education or women's careers. Absolutely, I will kind of be the strongest defender of all of those things. What I think has happened, though, is that we've pushed, we're, we're pushing people more and more towards the end of their fertility window, women, men, of course. Um, we've simply made it more challenging for, for women to get the education, the training that they want to get it to a certain point in the career path. And on a societal level, there's this effect. Um, there's a famous economist whose name I forget, you know, said it very succinctly some, some time ago, just as a, a, a general motivation we tend to do what everybody else is doing as a society. So if our friends are not having kids or not thinking of it until another two or three years, it seems that that becomes the right thing for us to do too, because it, it becomes the societal norm. And whatever it is, you can certainly see, and I'll not give away the full details of the documentary because I'd love people to explore, to experience the story themselves, but certain things were happening in Japan and Italy and, and Germany around that time. There's financial instability at that time that I think caused people to think, okay, well, let's work for a few more years. Let's defer having a child a little bit. We can always do that later. Let's focus on work because that seems the right thing to do. And what you've just done in that is reinvent society where that becomes a societal norm now yes. for so um well you know, when, when you think about human english or not english but language and how mm. we developed as a species around language it, it is completely through, through the mirror neuron system what you're describing there so how birds flock together fly together they learn together like as simple concepts um it is really uh, like it is really like that. It's an exponential. It can start out small, and then people start to see things good about this phenomena, and then they and then it literally is like an energetic change that can happen, and it can spread 
in an exponential way. Just like if you look at my mum's and dad's era, everyone was having, they had a small family having four children where we were. Most people had between, in a small country town, had between seven and 12. That's who I grew up with. But you know, a lot of their friends have four or five kids. And I look at all my friends, the next generation, we have between two and three, and anyone that has four is considered having a large family. And yes. now I look at my children that are, only had two. Yeah, there's my daughter and my son. And so you can see what you're saying is really is a social phenomena in some sense as well. And, and you know, a lot of people, myself included, talk about the future economic impact of that. And that, that can be a little bit cold, frankly, because, you know, in, in some ways, you know, certainly I, I, you would um I have got pushback when people say, oh, this is just about, you know, governments just need more money or corporations need more consumers. But it's 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 so much more than that um, in terms of how it will affect pensions and the ability to take care of the elderly and provide enough uh, health care and welfare for them. But if, if you move all that to one side, important as it is, it comes back to reality that in most of our industrialized economies today, somewhere around 30% of people are ending up childless. And the vast majority of those, it was not by choice, it was unplanned. And when you look at, for many of those people, how traumatic that is to accept. I know there'll be people listening to this podcast, and it may be a subject that is very difficult to, to, to listen to. Because as societies, we, we've, this is a hidden problem. We're not aware of just what level of suffering there is for many, many people. So if you're looking for me at um, I mean, what you're saying there about birds flocking together gives me hope in a sense that we, we can in some way reverse this just by starting to understand, to talk to each other more about the reality that for many people who want children, life will just follow its course if we don't re-engineer um, things in some way. Um, and that this is a good thing because not only will it help people who to, f- to fulfill their lives, what they wanted to do, as well as helping the elderly people who need support through, you know, the, the growth of our economies in some way. So this is a subject that touches so many different areas. Yeah, well, it touches all of us, doesn't it? So let's just have some of these difficult conversations now about mm-hmm. the topic um, that really put people in two camps in some way. Uh mm-hmm. Because obviously I reflected all of these conversations immediately to people in my immediate circle that are between 20 and 32 and then outwards for for friends, family, et cetera. And the pushback straight away, which I know you get all the time, and this is close people. So we have a population explosion. This is a really good thing because these this generation care a lot about the environment and the environment's going to end the world anyway. So why would we want to bring more children into this uh, into this you know kind of new world? Don't you think this is a really good thing? So that would be one of the biggest pushbacks I would say in the generation in my children's generation, for example. Yeah, you know, it- there's so many ways I could start this conversation. Um, let me put something out there first of all. Um, we cannot scale populations 
it's it's not like um being in an airplane where you're at a certain altitude and the you know the, the captain says we're a little bit too high we're going to go down by ten thousand feet and that is all smooth and you barely notice population trends don't behave that way you either spiral upwards you stay about the same or you spiral downwards and what what is about to happen um was it starts slowly it takes decades to actually notice it is a downward spiral and in this case the unfortunate thing is when we're in that down spiral uh there's no rules as to how to stop it no one knows actually how we would as societies ever go back to replacement level the average of around two surviving per woman so we better start thinking about this now because someone has to figure out at some point some future generation is going to have to stabilize birth rates. So the idea that we can just glide down without thinking about it just mathematically is not right. Um, now, are there too many people on the planet? Some people say yes, some people say no. Um, do we have environmental challenges? Of course, I'm uh, absolutely on that side. But I, um, you know, in terms of what those challenges are and what the solutions are, if you're to think that a solution might be having less people, um, it's going to take an exceptionally long time to ever have an impact. And the impact will be uh, almost like a rounding error. So, so let me explain. Um, consumption today, and this is based on a report published in Nature uh, last year by seven or eight professors. If you look at the um, age groups that consume most, that have the largest footprint, that's between age 30 and 65 People under 30 are responsible for around 8% of our footprint. So if you're talking to people today in their 20s who are probably thinking of having a family, you know, in 10 years out, let's say, um, it would be another 30 years beyond that before you would get to the 8% point. So we're looking at a 40-year window. Now, that would be 8%. You'd only reduce by 8%. If there are no children anymore, if, if, if there's no children in the world, you know, footprint would go on for another 40 years. I will be a supporter for everyone to simply have the life that they want. I think what we have underestimated, uh, though, however, is that um, I think the assumption for most people, it would have been certainly for me, is that most people who don't have children uh, for life either chose it that's that's what they wanted mm -hmm. or they had some medical problems um it turns out both those things uh, are actually the minority significant minority um professor kaiser uh, and her uh, research has estimated something like 80 percent people without children actually had planned to have children um there's a bit of a gray area around that where some people um how can you say through trying to not have dissonance, kind of just move on and, and forget about that. But I've seen uh, two cases of talking to a woman to 40s and 50s who initially told me that they hadn't wanted children, ending up breaking down and remembering that they had wanted children and they've been kind of, uh, they've developed some coping mechanism. Uh, and maybe that's fine in many, many cases. This is more your expertise than, than, yeah. than mine. But in, uh, what I could see, I think, at a societal level, we, we have to understand that actually the vast majority of people, it's, uh, surveys would suggest it's around 95% of us have some innate desire to have a family. Yeah. Um, there's a couple of things that I, that 
come through my mind from the Modern Wisdom podcast that I'd love to touch on here. Uh, this is such an important conversation because for so long women have had zero power in terms of leadership and development and education and many societies actually got rid of women or value men over women in their culture, but now they're asking for women to step up and fix the problem again. Um, but what you're saying is what we have to do is recognise that uh, it's not against women being educated that will solve this problem. It's about understanding that we're all in this together and yeah. that we can remake our organization. Like even still, if you're pregnant now and you're in a workplace, it's really difficult to get promoted still. Mm -hmm. I know it's a lot better. And we talk about more women being educated at universities, but the reality is as me being a woman professor in science, you can imagine what I faced in the nineties um, just to become a professor. It's very unusual. Um, uh, you know, it was very difficult, put it that way. So what you're saying is we're going to have to rethink how we work together too, yes. right? It's not just if we want to have more children or allow people to who want to have kids work and be successful in their careers, it has to be an acceptance and an embracing of people having children because that doesn't exist right now in most organizations still. I'm telling you as someone that can see it, yeah. they're trying, they say it. But in reality, yes. uh, we don't share equally the work at the home. We don't share equally anything, really. But we're expected to bring the children into the world. So I think that whole conversation around what we can do to empower the society to think differently around gender and diversity is yeah. probably one of the big conversations that we would be able to have too. There's a point in the documentary where I, um, one of the you know, the crew asked me off off camera, you know, is this really a problem and, you know, how do we uh, cope with it? And I, I know I say that there has to be a fundamental change. It isn't about making some small tweaks to things. It's got to be something major. And what you're hinting on there is, you know, just changing some corporate policies to or increasing maternity leave or paternity leave. Yeah. You know, those all might be good things, but they're not going to solve this this crisis. Um, well, they haven't and, so far, have they? Right, no, exactly. <laughs> Where I get hope, though, is if you put out, there's a backdrop here that we all are living longer. And much as many of us would like to continue to retire in our mid-60s, perhaps, is a norm these days. Uh, you know, for younger people today, uh, you know, if you're college age now, the idea of retirement in the mid-60s will be just, you know, uh, unrealistic, almost laughable because it, the societies will not be able to sustain the length of retirement another two, three decades after that. And I don't think people will want to live those lives because I think those decades are going to become more and more challenging um, for the reasons we've said. So careers, I think, need to be spread over longer periods of time. They need to ultimately morph into, I think, second careers or maybe third careers, careers that you know, I, I've heard of programs. Um, and I am, I, I, I don't know if we said, but actually I'm based in Japan. I moved to Tokyo yes. and live here partly through this project, but I'm just partly to understand, you know, how Japan is coping with this crisis. But, you know, I heard of programs here where people in their eighties can do a few hours of work a day in their homes yes, um, and still add value and give back to societies. I know so, someone that's just started a podcast in her eighties in the Bay area. For example, right. and I think it's a great thing on every level. I think to have continued purpose 
and also continued community, you know, to, to help break down the barriers of loneliness later in life. If you're still you know, interacting and pr producing uh, something for society, I think that's overall good. But to come back to the point, Dan, about you know, when's the right time to have children, I think we should make it much easier to have career gaps. To You know, a, a lot of mothers... Fathers, too. I, I shouldn't just talk about mothers. It's it's too easy to do that. But people, I think, should be given the opportunities to um, spend more time raising a family at a younger age and then come back to their career, not compromised in, in any way. Yeah. And one of the ways that this can be done, um, I believe, is you know, allowing younger people to effectively start their main career in their early 30s. The idea of you know going into uh, you know, corporations having recruitment drives for people aged 32 to you know start their career it, it happens but it's unusual it's not the normal thing to do it's a risky thing to plan on right now it might work out for you but might not if you're thinking that way but on a societal level for that to be the norm that you do some work in your 20s you find your way you try a different educational paths so you find the one you want you might have a family or start a family and, and then age 32 because you still might be working on that same career for the next 40 years, yeah. uh, 50 years. You've still got enough time yeah. to develop and succeed at a career. And this makes me think about how the older generation also have to recognize that uh, they have to change to embrace these new concepts of work for young people. Because when you get older, you get really stuck in your routines and your understanding of what a career is. And you think that should apply for many generations before you. So this is where the lifelong learning, changing your mindset to embrace these, this new way of thinking is so important to across the lifespan. Um, yes. You know, that's hard, isn't it? As you get older to think that all oh, those young people, like, you know, by this age, I had kids by this age, I had achieved this. So why aren't they doing that as well? I, th I think we're going through a transition now. I think in the past, generations were more similar um, in terms of focusing on one thing for a certain period of time. Um, and that's just not working anymore. But you, but you can see other, you know, the gig economy, for example, is another, you know, reality that actually probably helps here that, you know, people I think are going to be more used to the idea of not depending on one career or certainly not one employer for life. I think that's ultimately to, to our benefit to allow us to effectively remain more flexible. Um, yeah, I, I just just one point on back to loneliness in this context again. You know, I, I saw some data recently in the amount of time elderly people spend alone, even if they have families. Um, you know, I, I think people imagine I've had the comment, that, oh, well, I'm in my, uh, when I'm in my 80s, if I don't have children, I'll, I'll still have my friends. But if you look at the data, 80-year-olds are not spending very much time with friends at all. And you know, so well, the, the medical can... issues really start over eighty, is what I've discovered quickly and fast, more than I wanted to, and all the research now. One in two people over eighty fall, which then deconditions their medical health basically, and that's partly why they can't get out and about as much as they think they'd be able to. And we can't predict that either, and none of us know exactly what state of health. So to to assume that's dangerous, but to link that back to the extension of careers. You know, and to loneliness, therefore, if we do engineer a society that allows older people to have some uh, career might not be the right word, but some job, some way of communicating with people, um, you know, I think it's it's win win all around. Yes. So I just want to touch on one last point around this issue. And uh, I remember. So I'm 
kind of your target audience, even though I'm a generation older than, you know, uh, others. I was a career person in science in the 90s when not many people were, but um, in Australia. And I remember this moment when my mother interfered and said, because I'd been married actually for a long time and we'd been together 10 years and I was 31 too. And at Christmas time, she gave me an outfit um, for Christmas and inside the outfit was a little blue crocheted baby's outfit. And basically she said to me, it's time. And it honestly had not occurred to me. Um, and fortunately I was able to be conceived in four days after that moment that my mother instilled in something without even knowing it was going to happen. And I often look back at that moment and reflect on what you're talking about here. And that was really me too. I just got lucky in some sense, because I was able to fall pregnant and have two children under 40, but between 32 and 40 and, and, and maintain my career, which is really, really difficult. But, uh, but I can see exactly what you're talking about. Cause I was one of your subjects. <laughs> Fortunately, I end up having children, but I could see equally now reflecting back that that could have easily happened. And that would have been very sad. Uh, if that didn't happen for me. So I can see how it happens, um, why it happens and fixing it or changing it is a, is a multiple gendered issue. It's not just women needing to delay their careers. It's also, it's a rejigging of the whole thing. As you said, it's men and women delaying their careers. It's men yeah. doing more at home. It's more because as my friend, who's a professor at Berkeley went through the same thing, didn't have a baby till she was 40 she said to me, Selena, nothing's going to change in this world until men are doing the work at home as well. And that's so true. And it, I never agreed with her at the time because I was doing it all at home and at work because that was my generation. But what you're seeing is a whole reframing really of how we think about how we work together towards solving this solution. There are a lot of issues um, that we need to solve, and uh, maybe we should just talk about men a, a little bit here in this context. Um, um, you know, I, I think there's a belief among men um, that we uh, can wait for as long as we want. Uh, you know, the, the biological clock is almost infinite, and certainly there's a feeling that you can wait until your 40s to then find that that partner I'm more and more I, I I'm hearing this is yes. quite a common thing but uh there's an aha moment for me in, in this because I, I I'm a divorced dad I divorced just before his 40 of three kids uh so like you I feel very fortunate that life worked out that way for me not so fortunate we're divorced but I think in my 40s I also thought it might be quite easy to to find someone and start a family again but it doesn't get easier you get older and you're competing with men 10 years younger than you for the women that are able to have children so you know there's a shrinking pull of women because by by early 30s quite a lot of women are already in relationships whether they're having children or not so the idea is a man that you can just wait and choose your own time to find the right woman just isn't true at all. And it turns out there's more childless men than childless women overall, because some men end up having two families with, with different women, more than women do the, 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 the converse. So, um, you know, actually men are clearly um, uh, just as important in women in this in terms because it needs a match and it needs many things I'm sure, like you're saying, in terms of being uh, more balanced in terms of housework, et cetera. Um, I can't deny that. 
But I, I, I think men first have to understand that there is a clock ticking as well. It may not be a biological one. No, but there, no. I was going to interrupt there, and it is a biological one. So there's mm-hmm. a. I just there's amazing work now coming out around uh, transgenerational epigenetics, and so they've shown that older men, because sperm has a big role to play in in childbirth. And uh, so aging sperm can lead to far more uh, ADHD, autism in, in their offspring. Mm-hmm. So the, and uh, and because basically you're passing along, you know, lots of different uh, information so that that just that's just coming out now, that research. And it's around the RNA. So not mm-hmm. the DNA, which is your blueprint that you think of as stable. It actually gets influenced um, by RNA and that it, and you're aging you're aging out of having uh, fit sperm, so to speak. So yeah, so it all plays out for both of us. So that's why potentially if you think about um, evolution and for survival of the fittest, um, if we just go to straight biological terms, women could be looking for fit sperm. Mm-hmm. Like outside, right. you know, like I know that's really base base way of thinking about but it, but it's, that um, is also there too. Yeah, as part of, I guess, evolutionary psychology might be the term now as to yeah. why we choose partners we do and it's a fascinating area i'm learning more about it that we're all beholden to the (laughs) millennia of history that have gone back to to make us who we are today i I think uh, to come back to them fertility in the documentary i interview four fertility doctors um including kim kardashian's fertility doctor dr wang who's got a wonderful way of explaining just what happens to you know women's eggs as they age and I think there's a, a an awareness gap here that um, the, it's not just about the quantity of eggs, it's that the quality of women's eggs deteriorate really quite sharply into the 30s, much sharper than I think most women might be aware of. And um, as well as that, you have the very sad reality that uh, throughout the 30s, um, the, a woman's ability to carry a baby to term um, becomes more and more challenged. Um, so we all do hear, you've mentioned friends having mm-hmm. uh, children in their, you know, in their forties. Um, you know, my own sister uh, gave birth at 41. Um, but those are rarities. I remember my sister was told the probability of her getting pregnant at, at that age was, I believe, 15%, one five. Yeah. So the stories we hear um, about success stories, wonderful as they are, are very much more the exception than the rule. Yeah. Um, you and know, I think so. that's the bit we want to point out. I'm I'm talking about being lucky, but I do know that, and I think about this a lot now. Even before your, I've found you on the podcast. I was thinking about this even for my own kids. Is like no one ever talks about the fertility um, window in relationship to the career um, window. Um, and I think that's something that if you do want to have children, it's something just like all facts, it's good to know. And then then you, at least you know you're making a choice in some sense. Or you may not be too because other people may want to put it off. And so matching up to the right person and the time window is actually quite tricky because that's why you know people that used to have kids a lot younger um, and they didn't live as long either. So it's very complicated yes, scenario it but, but without knowing that you need to know the facts to come back to data um you know one piece of information that uh, came out was that in all the societies we looked at the chance of a woman turning 30 without a child 
ever becoming a mother is at most 50%. Um, so, you know, I call it's uh, overly simplified, but it's a to- toss of a coin. If you don't already have your first child, only half of women, and this goes across every nation that we've got data for. So I think there's a big overestimation, um, partly because of the career cycles, but also very uh, significantly because of the lack of information, like you say, that people just don't know this. Well, I didn't. Uh, I didn't pay attention to it when I was in the middle of my career, just doing a postdoc and you're immersed in that environment and you're just trying to achieve the goals and you're not really honestly thinking about your age. And I was married, so... Well, that, 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 there's a, a number of points. So everything has to line up, doesn't it? You know, it's not only that you, it has to be the right moment for you, but you need to have the right partner at the right time. And there's some organizations out there providing information. There's been books written on this topic, support groups. Uh, a lot of people just, you know, either don't have the partner at the right time. They've gone through a breakup. They're, you know, they... Um, people, particularly women, from what I'm hearing from from women, and women don't want to compromise. They're looking for love first. You know that that often is the most important thing to them. Build a family around. Um, so just just one thing, if I can say, you know, birthgap.org. Thank you for the introduction earlier. You know, the documentary was the first step. The second step is creating education materials and creating awareness programs so that people. Uh, around the world, particularly educators and any educator, please reach out to me. We're putting together like uh, education packs with information, with visuals, links to the documentary that can be used in teaching environments just to make people more aware of um, these realities. And thank you so much for everything you've done in this space. I mean, it started as a interesting question and now it's become a huge phenomenon, hasn't it? The timing is interesting. When I first started out, I thought, you know, I was able to step back from running my business enough to take, you know, a few months to, uh, you know, do the first, uh, we ended up going to 24 countries, by the way, and I interviewed 230 people, but I thought it would take a year. I thought I'd go to Europe for a couple of weeks, a week in Japan, and that would be enough. But the project kept pulling me into it because I realized the problem is bigger and there are more problems here than I ever realized and people are opening up to tell me deeply personal stories that they've never told anybody else, not even in their family or communities. So it was almost a sense of responsibility um, that I felt I just need to, uh, it's, and it has, it's just taken over my life now. My, my business is still there, but uh, I, I'm very much passive in it. And uh, I can't, um, maybe I'm an example of someone changing career partway through, just finding a new passion for whatever reason, and then getting an extra. If you look at the um, peak time when when most people, when people consume most, it's between age 30 and 65. So it's 30 years uh, before we get to a point where significant consumption takes place. And just to put a number in that, Nature Magazine came out with a, a paper last year with seven or eight professors who articulated that Age under 30, people are responsible for around 8% of global emissions of footprint. So only 8%. If you were to tell people today to have less children and they were thinking of having children in the next 10 years or so and thought, well, maybe they won't or they'll have less children, um, that would be 10 years before they start plus 30 years to get out of it before you got to a time of significant emissions. And if you bring the world's population down by 10, 20%, 
you're talking about a delay of 40 years before you even really see any significant uh, movement at, at all. And even then, it's only a very small amount. So population is a very inefficient way to try to deal with our environmental problems to the point that we may as put well put that energy or that thought process into other ideas, other green technologies, other ways to uh, of conservation and you know helping with biodiversity, things that kind of immediate or near immediate effect. Population takes decades. Yes, and so the one fact that really struck me um, to give a visual to people is, and this is work of Gosling, uh, Rosling, sorry, as well, where you have an inverted pyramid happening. So, right. so we're going to top out his his estimates and yours around ten eleven billion people, um, and that's right now, and that's it might even be less. Yes, and that's that, that's I'm glad you reminded reminded me to to make that that point that we reached what Professor Rosling calls peak child about twenty years ago. You know, it was just after the year two thousand that the world's uh, number of children being born every year hit hit its peak. And it's been hovering around the same and it will start going down quite quite soon. So the reason the world's population is growing, we hit 8 billion last November. Um, the reason for that is nothing to do with children, as it happened. It's to do with the fact that there's so many young people who are surviving, you know, life longevity, but also countries, for example, you know, in, in Asia, Africa, who would have died at a very young age before they could have had families of their own child survival has increased significantly. So we've got a very young population in parts of the world and those people will live out their lives. And all of the growth, it's a little bit counterintuitive, all of the growth we're seeing now is simply because the number of people who are passing on is so low given that the planet's so young and we cannot therefore do anything about it. And yes, I think 10 billion is a realistic maximum. It might hit 11. Others think it'll barely touch nine, but I would choose 10 as the most likely number. Yeah. Uh, so the next piece of this um, that isn't so evident, but I've also experienced firsthand in the last couple of months, is uh, the loneliness factor through aging. And it's, I mean, I'm not saying that it's up to the young people to solve this, but it requires uh, engineering new solutions, as you mentioned. That's what this is all about, is helping people see that this is not good or bad, it just is what it is. These are the facts. So let's work out solutions around the new world that we're facing. So, you know, you talk a lot about in your documentary in Japan where schools are closed, yeah, yeah, preschools are closing, but older people are, uh, some of them are jumping out of buildings, et cetera. You talk about Germany where people are being buried without anyone there. I experience this in a very small way, uh, watching people in hospital uh, older people not having visitors, people being photographed and removed from their beds after passing away, et cetera, with no one there. Uh, these are very significant concerns for for anyone. All of us are going to be aging and heading in that direction at some point. So we'd like to be surrounded by people that we love in some sense. So that's an unintended consequence that most people, certainly I was not aware of. Yeah, um, and this... You know, if you, you know, going back to how I started the project, my my, I mean, my goal was simply to understand why birth rates have been falling uh, around the world. But all these related topics opened up, and uh, I had no expectation I would be pulled in 
to people's lives the way I have been, particularly in the area of loneliness. And it's, it is absolutely um, you know, an older age issue crisis, but it's also uh, a crisis for those people who don't have children in, you know, in their adult years where they were expecting to, and, and also the possibility that those people end up single as well. So I'm seeing loneliness th- throughout society on a level that you know is unprecedented compared to you know a generation or two ago when just extended families were bigger. You, you know, you had more siblings, you had more cousins, nephews, and nieces to help support you. And yeah, you know, what you allude to there in terms of people jumping out of buildings in Tokyo, I mean, it's 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 horrendous. This is one community where if you go back uh, 40, 50 years, um, you can see black and white photographs of children being everywhere i mean just everywhere and you go there now and it's like a ghost community um the term i came up uh, with in the documentary is yesterlands you know places that were built for yesterday that today um you know are, are not um well either they have high rates of um houses apartments with nobody living there you know dilapidation you've got you know uh, I heard actually Japan, someone was telling me two or three days ago in a very nice suburb of Tokyo, uh, a house that had been unoccupied for some years. And what had happened was some pigeons had got into it and then various other vermin. And no one knew about this for a significant period of the time. And now the entire street has got this problem, you know, with so, so living in an area where you've got falling populations with a lot of people living alone um, is it's not easy to conceptualize because in most people's daily lives we gravitate towards communities that are more lively usually we don't see that side of it but that's going to creep up closer and closer and closer to to all of us in, in fact and your core point, I think, was loneliness of the elderly. You know, when I realized in that, you know, one community in Tokyo where I spent a lot of time, how many people there were in their 80s, you find that if you went early morning to visit, you'd see older people on, on, on the bench a little bit if the weather was nice. They'd come out early in the morning and they would sit and they might talk to you and you'd see them talking to each other a little bit, but not many. Um, but the rest of the day, they would go back to their apartments and, and it was it was back to like being a ghost town. And I couldn't believe when I heard that in this apartment complex, maybe 30 different buildings all built together, there are 10,000 people living. And occupancy is actually 98%. It's not, I thought it, this was an area where, you know, every other apartment was vacant. Um, but no, it's all people living alone and mainly women living alone because women typically outlive men. So you could just get a flavor of what life might be like their one little morning walk, maybe a couple of times a week and the rest of the time being spent alone in their apartments with with really no family and no one to talk to. Uh, it's it's horrendous. I, I One thought that came through my mind thinking about like, I don't know if you've watched the documentary film uh, Chernobyl uh-huh. by David Attenborough. So he starts out in the film because they had that uh, nuclear accident there, as you remember. Mm. And he starts out the film how it is now, and it's like covered in nature. But there's absolutely no people there because it's not livable. Mm -hmm. So I often think about, when I think about where we're heading, I often think about nature always wins in the end. So it's like a homostatic system that if you overindulge on something, there's a 
a force that brings you back to it, the nat- natural world in a way, and nature always wins in the sense. And I think, you know, to come back to your point about people who would want there to be less pressure on the environment, uh, which is desirable, you know, nature may well win in future here. There may well clearly it's looking like there's going to be a lot le- less of us in future, but the journey to get to that point is going to be pretty unpleasant for humanity. And especially if we're not prepared for it, Um so, you know, for all the problems we're talking about here, I think awareness of them can minimize um, the situation. And I am hopeful that to come back to young people, because I, I don't want to forget to mention that those people who are um, intending to have children who maybe are hearing this and hearing other commentators just talk about the challenges of having children, particularly for women you know, in their 30s. I think the education system and the recruitment systems need to become much, much more flexible so that people can spread their education over a longer period of time. We're going to be living longer, working longer anyway. So why do all of our education before age 22? Um, I'm a lifelong learner and I love going back uh, to take classes occasionally, but on things I want to learn to keep up to date on are relevant to me. And I think the idea that we kind of force people into this high-pressured educational environment, training environment early in life, and then clearly incentivize people to focus on developing their career first, that needs to be rethought through. So I think there will be ways to um, make people's lives happier, to make communities happier, but we cannot stop what's already started. It's going to have some level of impact, whether we like it or not. Yes, I think that's the piece. Like you, you bring it to life in the film through Detroit as a really stark example. In America, for example, when they lost half their population, it became a very dangerous place to live because I, I was living in America during this period. I was in the mm-hmm. Bay Area, but um, it was always in the news what was happening in Detroit, and even during the two thousand eight uh, crash, financial crash, their their houses went to five thousand dollars. Yes. And for example, and I remember, I mean, a lot of houses went down, but I remember this example very clearly because there were people in Australia being sold the houses in Detroit. And because I'm from Australia as well, I was thinking they don't understand what they're buying, for example. Well, yeah, and I, I actually spent a lot of time in Detroit is where my business is based. So I think it's another reason, you know, I, 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 I became so passionate about this project because I could see Detroit and what had happened to it. Um, and you're right, 08, those years, it was on the daily news, not just about crime, but that streets had no street lights and the councils weren't prepared to go. It was, wasn't safe enough to go to change the light yes. bulbs. But there was vermin, you know, this vermin problem again was overtaking the city. There were just random fires because there's, the fire services didn't have enough resources from the taxes of the yes. people who were left living there. Um, and the police so, didn't want to go to certain areas. That's that's right. So you would need, yeah, you, you you could buy houses. I certainly heard of one selling for ten thousand dollars, but but you couldn't actually go there. You know, even if you lived in the area, people were buying those, but it wasn't safe. Well, to- the private equity firms were selling them in bunches to people in this, like as investments, basically during that time. You know how people always look for opportunity in these moments, but I was just. Anyway, what I found interesting was the recovery process that you described too, how it's a lot smaller, but people have somehow reinvented parts of the story there. 
Yeah, and then it's actually a, a great success story. Um, so the fall in population in Detroit happened nothing to do with birth rates, but to do with um, the automotive industry, workers effectively, yeah. um, factories being moved to other locations across America and Mexico, et cetera. And there was an exodus. But you have the same problem. You're left with too few people. And it was actually, I think it was 63% reduction in the population. And one of the facts is that the uh, the city of Paris could fit inside the vacant areas of Detroit. You know, this was a vast city. It was America's fourth largest, I think, third, fourth wealthiest city when it was in its heyday, you know, going back 60, 70 years ago. So the transformation is quite incredible. But what happened, there was a stabilization of the population at a certain moment in time. And there was the big moment in 2013 when the city declared bankruptcy. It just couldn't pay its debts. And um, for a city you know, like Detroit, that gave it hope. The population was stabilized. And enough of the streets and vicinities were completely vacant by this point in time that they could raise those to the ground. They could... Uh, bring back parkland, uh, wetlands. So suddenly there was a change in Detroit, uh, I think because of the, the the low-cost property. A lot of artists moved to the city. There's some beautiful buildings with some beautiful light. I mean, you, you find artists, you find musicians moving there. So I do remember, you know, you know, just after 2013, being downtown Detroit, and the very first, um, I think, Whole Foods opening there. There were there had been no grocery stores of any kind in downtown Detroit for maybe two decades, and suddenly there was one store. And then after that, you had live music being played at lunchtime for the worker, and it just suddenly this buzz started. So you can see how revitalization yes. can absolutely happen. But the key point in, in this story is that happened once population stabilized. You know, you, they got to a point of staying around, I think, a 700,000 population. Things were static again. The economy was rebuilt around that static population, and it was able to plan its future. The problem for all our economies with falling birth rates is, well, we're, we're never going to get to that point until birth rates go back up to around 2.0. So that's the frightening thing. We're always going to be downsizing. Well, I, I came up with the term retronomics, you know, having to retrofit our economies for, you know, um, based on the fact that there's just fewer taxpayers, there's fewer people to support the society. So Detroit turns out to be a great example of what it went through, how, the challenges, how it coped with it, and what the possibilities are for future um, for us all. But I, a, a few people, if I could just clarify, a few people think that, oh, if a birth rate's staying around 1.6, and it stays at 1.6, that that's stable. It is not stable. That means basically you're, you're nosediving at a constant rate. You know, you're still going down. Um, to, to pull out of your nosedive, that needs to go back to, you know, well, close to 2.0. So as we think one thing that we want to talk about here is that some women, like there's quite a lot of women that listen to this particular podcast as well, and me too, we, we're not trying to make out that women have to go out and have lots of children to make up and look after all the old people um, that have created the environment that we currently have. What we're saying is that we want to be eliminating the facts, and this is not an anti-women or going backwards m moment in our society. It's a recognition that we have created a better society through education of women and giving them a place in the world. It's about how do we work towards 
integrating all this knowledge to create solutions around the situation that we're now facing. That's something that you want to say very clearly. That's who you are as a person. Yeah, it's so important. Um, I, I'm describing myself now as a pan-natalist. Um, pan-natalist meaning someone who will support people who want to have children passionately, but also support people who do not want children passionately. Uh, this is not about encouraging, uh, coercing, telling people who just don't want to become parents that they have to do so. Um, you know, that that's just a backward step. And there, there are some uh, nations, there are some uh, regimes that today can be seen doing that uh, more through coercion. I mean, uh, examples, uh, you know, well, one example would be Iran right now where vasectomies have been made illegal, for example. Wow. To try I didn't and know about that. Yeah. So it's it's creeping into many, many. And I think we've got to be on the watch for this. I think we've got to be aware that there will be movements, there will be politicians who you know support this and they may uh, dress it up in a certain way that it sounds appealing, but um, no boost of enthusiasm for it. So, but, so as we close out the podcast, Stephen, let's give mm-hmm. um, the audience some hope. Um, you're living in Japan to see how they can help solve some of these problems because they're at the leading edge, as you say, of the birth gap crisis. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you see any rim- glimmers of hope of how people are addressing this problem, even if it's at a really local level? There is hope. And I didn't expect many times to come to this conclusion. But I tell you that the greatest hope I have is when I've screened the documentary to groups of young people, students, um, the reactions from young people, which is usually shock, unawareness, had no idea that you know the, these things are issues that they have to confront earlier in life. And from one young uh, Japanese college student, um, to me, she said it all. She said watching this documentary changed her life. And she didn't say any more than that. But I, I think I knew what she meant, that she understood now that there is a balance, that you, know, you can't have everything, or that young people in some way need to re-engineer career work-life balance to, to enable you know, all of these things to happen. Oh, oh, but in a different sequence to now. So I, I, I believe that young people will solve this. And yes. I, I believe you know that that's where that's where it will start. Oh, that's that's a great way to finish because I've learned a lot about this too. I used to think that it was up to the older people to no, but I've come to see and learnt through Gavin McCormick, who started 15 schools in India and he was teaching young people how to help the older people in the farms get better at farming and then they actually followed them. So, and I've learned from other people too since that, um, and in Canada actually, where there's people in foster care and they're actually helping to teach um, other kids about adverse childhood experiences Mm -hmm. and it's helped them heal four generations of adversity by reuniting with their great-grandmother, for example, who had to give up the kids to foster care because she'd lost her husband in the war and thought the system would do better at raising her kids. Right. And those young people are between 16 and 20, educating other young people and the world about how to break the transmission of multi-generations of adversity. So I'm thinking, wow, so maybe you're right, and maybe this is where to start making the biggest difference. 
I believe I'm just in closing. The, the, the nature of this problem is that there will be fewer and fewer young people, and they're going to be in hot demand for careers. That you know, they're they're going to be able to call the shots, and I think young people are going to be able to tell employers the kind of career work life balance that they need. And I think corporations will be forced to change to accommodate that more. And for many, that should enable them to have children um, during a fertility window better than than today. So so there really is hope here and. Uh, yeah, if you don't mind me saying that, the first part of the documentary is on YouTube. Uh, yes, anyone can watch course. it. Of course, yeah. Please let everyone know how to join and subscribe to what you're doing because you're, I'm a subscriber. Yeah, yeah, you can subscribe to it. Yeah, so, uh, for a nominal fee, we are you know encouraging members at birthcap.org. We we are continuing our own research. Um, you know, the the plan is to make birthcap.org uh, a significant, more significant organization with research in many countries around the world. So, we, any philanthropist who wants to talk to us about helping scale that, that, that would also be very interesting to us. Um, but the main thing is that we want to keep all of the materials, education materials, um, core parts of the documentary free for anyone to watch. So, you know, that that's uh, something I'm passionate about. But um, yeah, anyone listening, I'd love to to have you join. You can join birthcap.org for free. There's no cost or and or you can choose to make a a small donation too. Yes. So thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with us today on the Thriving Minds podcast. Um, So many interesting new revelations for me and really changed my thinking too about the next kind of 40 years. (laughs) So thank you so much. Thank you, Sling. I enjoyed it. Thank you.